and turn to Mark 14. Our text is Mark 14, 43 to 52. Singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, always reminds me of a, a time where I was a, a leader at, at a sort of leadership conference for youth. There were, I don't know, four or five hundred uh, youth at this conference, and it was, it was supposed to be a Christian conference, but we knew that a lot of those uh, youth there weren't saved, weren't Christians, didn't have um, new hearts, and so we, we sang before one of those sessions, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and I remember a room of four or five hundred kids and it being really quiet, um, just not many singing about the faithfulness of God, and just thought these are such profound lyrics uh, because we, of what we know, those of us who are believers, and just within a uh, coming, a few coming weeks after that leadership conference, I was at church with lots of people, and we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and it was just, it just overwhelmed me about the, the beauty of the church together with one voice singing about the faithfulness of her God, and so it was a treat to sing that this morning with you. Uh, it's fun to sing with people who get who get what we've got. So, um, praise the Lord. Mark 14, 43 to 52. Please follow along as I read. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. One word title this morning, alone. Alone. If I asked you to name famous painters, some of you might be able to name dozens. Some of you might be able to name maybe just one or two. For those of you that can only name one or two, I bet you get Van Gogh. Maybe Da Vinci, Van Gogh, who knows what your one or two would be. But I, get, I bet that you would get Van Gogh. Why? He's well known, right? Vincent Van Gogh, one of the most famous painters in world history. Do you know how many paintings Vincent Van Gogh sold during his lifetime? One. One painting during his lifetime. Van Gogh was more appreciated after his life, after, his, after he died, than he was during his lifetime. In fact, he said this one time. He said, a great fire burns within me. He was speaking of the passion to do his work. A great fire burns within me, but no one stops to warm themselves at it. And passers-by only see a wisp of smoke. There may be something special in that man, but people didn't really see it or get it. In a sense, Van Gogh professionally was alone. That quote reminds me of our Lord. So much to give. So much to offer. Even today, 2021, so much to give those who would trust in Him. So much to teach those. So much to to, to give, and yet in many ways he stands rejected, passed by, glossed over, distrusted. And this passage shows us that Jesus is in fact at this time alone. It's interesting how the, the verses 43 to 52, you see people's wrong responses to Jesus and it gives you this, this understanding that he's by himself. 
Okay, we know the chief priests, scribes, and elders. We know that. But Judas, one of the twelve? Yes, Judas, one of the twelve. Even Peter wrongly responds to defending Jesus. And then all the disciples, that, that, that low point in this book, verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Mark is showing us that even his closest friends left him. He's alone here in the garden. Yes, he's arrested. He'll go to a trial. So there are people around him, but make no mistake, he's alone. He's alone here. For the outline for the morning, we're kind of gonna we're gonna go through these events that happen kind of one by one, and they just happen kind of number of verses and then next event, number of verses, next event. So four events which lead to Jesus standing alone. Four events which lead to Jesus standing alone. Let's look first, verses forty three to forty six, at the betrayal. The betrayal. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, Mark wants us to know he was, Judas came as he was talking. Well, what was Jesus saying? Look above at the verses we looked at last week, start in verse 41, and he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When he said, see, my betrayer is at hand, he's probably pointing at the crowd coming, led by Judas. And then Mark tells us here this week, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. So, I know seven days have passed since we went through this passage last week, but this happens at the same time. Let's go. My betrayer is at hand. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, as he was still speaking, Judas came. And notice that Mark wants us to know, again, Judas was one of the twelve. Again, we're so familiar with the, with the narrative. We're so familiar when Jesus says in the upper room that one of you men will betray me. Our, our minds, oh, yep, it's Judas. I already know who it is. Because we know our Bibles. We, we've grown up, some of you, in, in the church. You understand this. Even if you're a new Christian, you kind of know that Judas is the one that's going to betray him. Well, Mark's trying to bring that out for the first century audience. Judas one of the twelve came, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. They're coming to arrest someone. They're coming to arrest uh, Jesus, and they're coming as if he was one of the modern-day zealots, if he was one of the modern-day insurrectionists. They're coming as if he were a man like Barabbas, the one who led revolts and was violent. They're coming as if that's Jesus. They come with swords and clubs. Judas comes with a crowd, and we know that it's a crowd, probably the temple guard, the temple police that were the ones who were kind of the muscle in Jerusalem. They were there to serve on behalf of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So, a group of some sort of police force from the scribes, chief priests, and elders comes to this garden to meet Jesus. There could have been some scribes there. There could have been some chief priests. There could have been some elders. We don't know. We know it's a group, and we know it's some sort of force with swords and clubs. John tells us that there was a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests. So, John is kind of giving a little bit more of a glimpse here. John seems to show us that there's Roman soldiers as well. It's probably the case that there was the temple police serving at the behest of the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, and some sort of Roman contingent, which is not, it's not hard to believe or hard to understand because, again, remember, this is Passover. This is Passover. And there was a greater Roman military force in Jerusalem during the Passover. Why? Because the Passover was when, it was a time when the Jews were celebrating their freedom from Egypt, those pagan Gentile people who were oppressing us. Well, what did the Jews think the Romans were doing? Oppressing them, those pagan Gentile people. And Rome knew that. So there's always a greater police presence from the Romans in Jerusalem during the Passover. So it's not not surprising that John would kind of give a nod to this. So a Jewish police force and a Roman police force to some regard coming to the garden to arrest Jesus. Verse 44, now the betrayer had given them, this police force, a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. 
a lot in this verse. The betrayer Judas says, I'm going I'm to show you which one this is. Now, remember, it's nighttime, okay? They probably had some sort of artificial light, maybe candles, torches. They had some sort of light, but it's dark. It's nighttime. There aren't street lights out. But also remember this. Jesus is not some guy that looks different than everybody else in the crowd. Put away all your paintings of men that look like white Europeans with blonde hair. That's not Jesus. Okay, he didn't have a halo. His robe wasn't whiter and theirs was like really dirty. That's not Jesus. He looked like they did, all right? And it was dark, so they needed a sign. The one I will kiss is him. That's the man you're looking for. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Notice it's Judas saying this. Judas has been around Jesus for about three years, knows of Jesus' teaching, knows how Judas spoke to the religious leaders of the day, knows how Jesus spoke to women, knows how Jesus spoke to kids. Judas knows Jesus, or at least he should know Jesus, but Judas says that they need to seize him and lead him away under guard. Judas thinks that Jesus needs to be led away in handcuffs, if you will, modern-day terminology. I don't know why Judas thought this. Maybe it's because different times in Jesus' ministry when this police force was going after him, he would slip and literally duck out of crowds. But why did that happen? Because it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't his hour yet. There was more ministry to happen, more things to be done, more people to be reached. But now here, it's the hour. But Judas still thinks that Jesus might try to escape somehow. Judas still thinks that Jesus needs to be bound, taken under guard. He doesn't understand all that we understand. We know that this is the time and Jesus was going to be delivered over and even he was going to take it, willingly take it. But Judas says, the one I kiss, this is the man, sees him, lead him away under guard. And then he went up to him and just listened to the audacity of it. Rabbi, my teacher, my master. I mean, the kiss is enough. It's not a kiss of familiarity. It's not a kiss of greeting. It's a kiss of death. But even saying the word rabbi as if I want to sit at your feet and listen, I mean, just so much hypocrisy here. It's, it's sickening. Michael Card, the, the Christian songwriter, has a song where he talks about this kiss, and he said, why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. It's true. He betrayed him in the most familiar way, a a warm greeting, a kiss, showing how close he was. And remember, Mark has already shown us that the one who would betray him would be one eating with him. All these signs in Mark that this was an intimate betrayal, sharing a meal, which was an intimate moment that friends did, family did, sharing a meal together and now giving a greeting to a rabbi, a kiss, but behind it, a murderous intention. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him and seized him. They laid hands. They used force and they took him into custody. In today's wording, they used force and they took him into custody. Again, this is how the betrayal happened. One that was close to him came and got other people to use force and keep him in custody. Now, what would you be thinking if you were Jesus at this moment? Tensions would be high in the garden right now, right? Remember last week, Jesus has been praying. He's committed the plan into the Father's hands all all again, all over again. He's always gone about the Father's will. And in his humanity, he knew how difficult this task was. If there's any way... Father, if there's any other way around this, please do that, but yet not what I will, what you will. Your will be done. Jesus is, just pray- Jesus is ready for this, but as we'll see to come in Peter's response, tensions are high. Tensions are high. This is a stressful environment. Now, what do human beings do in stressful environments? Now, Psychologists know what the Bible simply teaches about stressful environments. You, you want to do one of two things. You want to flee or fight. Fight or flight. That's what we do in stressful environments. We leave or we fight. 
It's interesting, you see both of the disciples. You see Peter draw his sword time to fight, and then after Jesus, and we know from other passages in, in the different gospel writers, Jesus rebukes Peter, that's not the way we do this, then they want to flee. So you see both fighting and flight here in this passage from the disciples. What does Jesus do? Does He flee? No. Does He fight? No. Why? Because this is to be done according to the Scriptures. See the commitment of Jesus Christ and thank God the Father that He was committed because He was committed to do this for you and I. Jesus stays there. He stays. There's a doctor from the Cleveland Clinic who said this about the fight-or-flight response. During the response, all bodily systems are working to keep us alive in what we've perceived as a dangerous situation. That's really interesting. Why do we flee or why do we fight? Because it's our body, it's, all, it's our entire being saying, stay alive, protect yourself. I want you to see Jesus not fleeing, not fighting, being given over to death, if you will, for us. He didn't seek His own life here. He sought for yours and mine. It's fascinating. That's why I'm so struck by John 18, 4. It talks about this account when Judas comes to Jesus. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, He knows He'll be arrested. He knows He'll go through a mock trial. He knows that He'll be abused. He knows that He'll die on a cross. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus walked into the betrayal, if you will. He was ready for it. And He did that for me. And He did that for you. What a Savior. So Jesus neither flees nor fights, but... He's faithful. He's faithful to us. He is faithful to His disciples here. He's faithful unto death. So this first action that leads to Jesus being alone is the betrayal. We're brought into the garden to see the betrayal. Secondly, let's notice the wrong defense. There's a defense of Jesus, but it's the wrong defense. This isn't the way we defend Jesus. Verse 47, here's the fight response, if you will. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Judas comes, brings these men with swords and clubs. They go to arrest Jesus. They're approaching Jesus and they're arresting him. And in that moment, in that stressful moment, one of Jesus' followers takes out his sword and cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. Now, you don't want to mess with the high priest in Israel. You don't want to mess with a servant But this is what Jesus' follower does here, cuts off his ear. Now, who do the other gospel writers show us that this man is? Peter. Mark doesn't say it's Peter. Mark's been showing us Peter all along. Peter's a featured disciple all throughout the gospel of Mark. Peter is Mark's source even in writing this gospel. Why would Peter's name not be given here? Well, remember, Mark's writing to a first century audience in the Roman Empire who's being persecuted. Peter's still alive. You don't want to highlight Peter cutting off the high priest's servant's ear. You don't want to highlight that, okay? So we'll just leave his name out of that. One of Jesus' followers took out a sword and cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. So Mark doesn't name him, but we know who he is. Drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Now, why would he go for the ear? Well, most likely he wasn't going for the ear. He's going for what the ear is on, the head, okay? So you can understand a chaotic moment. Maybe he didn't get the cleanest swing, but he ends up cutting off the ear. What does Jesus do in the other gospels? He heals the ear. I want to read to you a couple of those other gospel accounts just to give you the full picture and show you this is the wrong response. This might be some of our response. Jesus, I'll defend you all day. I got guns. Jesus doesn't need your guns, okay? Doesn't need your knives, doesn't need your swords, doesn't need your sharp daggers coming out of your mouth or coming out of your hands on social media. He doesn't need you to defend him like that, okay? This is a wrong defense. Listen to Matthew 26, 52 to 53. Put your sword back into its place. That's what Jesus said to Peter. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I can't appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? See this group here in their swords and clubs? They're no match for the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Put your sword back in its place. See, hear Jesus rebuking Peter for this type of response. Listen to Luke 22, 49 to 51. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So there's this chaos happening. Mark shows us one part of it. Luke's showing us another part. Matthew's showing us one. So we know that Jesus has rebuked Peter. We know the disciples saying, do we fight now? Do we fight? There's a lot going on right now. Those who were around him saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. Again, Jesus rebuking Peter, and he touched his ear and healed him. He healed one of the men arresting him. Why was this man close? Because he, as we saw earlier, would have been one of the ones that came to arrest Jesus after this kiss. Jesus heals a man who's arresting him. John 18, verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? This is the plan. I'm to be arrested. We know Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He's told the disciples he's going to be delivered over. He's going to die. So he's saying to Peter, this is what's supposed to happen. Put your sword away. So it's important for us to see Christians don't fight like the rest of the world fights. The rest of the world fights with military might and power. Christians are different. It's interesting, some of you know that I studied political science uh, growing up in college and dabbled in politics for a time until the Lord saved me. Thank you. <laughs> um, and did some consulting for some campaigns. And one of the things that candidates often say at the beginning of a campaign, especially people who have had no political offense in the past, they're new to this whole thing, and they'll say something like, I don't want to go negative on my opponent. And a good political consultant, I'm not saying a good Christian, I'm saying a good political consultant will say, sorry, then you're going to lose. It's this understood things in, in politics, you've got to go negative. You've got to point out your opponent's faults, and you've even got to attack their character. I'm bringing you kind of behind the scenes of the political world. You know this already. It's not pretty, all right? A political consultant, someone showing you how to win an election, will tell you you've got to fight. And sometimes you've got to fight dirty. Friends, that's not the way Christianity advances. We don't fight like politicians fight. We don't fight like unbelievers with strong opinions fight. We don't fight that way. We don't fight with threats. We don't fight with ad hominem attacks. We don't fight this way. Our ways are different. Now, Peter messed up. If we were with Peter, let's say, I don't know, 30 years later, and said, Peter, the Roman Empire is persecuting us. They're making threats against us. They're telling us not to worship in the ways that we worship. Peter, what do we do? Do we fight? I wonder what Peter would have said. That's a setup. Peter wrote 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter 3. <laughs> Peter learned a lesson. Peter learned a lesson. So he gave the wrong defense of Jesus in the garden, but listen to this. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Peter himself, the author of this letter to persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire, said this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, you read those words, and we've been seeing Peter and Mark, and it's kind of humorous. All right, Peter, we know in Mark, has been arguing with the other disciples. Peter here is saying, have unity of mind together. Ha ha, Peter. Have sympathy. Have brotherly love. 
Have a tender heart and a humble mind. Evidently, friends, Peter's been changed. Peter's different. Let's continue on. Don't repay evil for evil. What did Peter literally do in Mark 14? He repaid evil for evil. But now new Peter is teaching us a new way. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Okay, listen. What did Peter see his Lord do in the garden to Malchus, the servant of the high priest? He saw the Lord bless Malchus, if you will, heal Malchus. So when evil is done to you, bless. For to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. Live this way. Live like your Savior lived and be blessed for it. And then he quotes the Old Testament, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Don't, don't, don't get dragged into the gutter and live like the world lives. Don't respond to evil like the world responds to evil. We're different. Let him turn away, verse 11, from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The Lord himself, that's Jesus. Jesus is looking now. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And He's not talking about the evil people of the world. He's talking about those in His family who do evil in response to evil. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which Jesus was doing in the garden, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, you want to defend Jesus? Here you go, okay? You're zealous to defend Jesus' name? Here's what Peter's going to tell you to do. He's just told you a bunch of what not to do. Now listen to this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's different. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You want to take a stand for Jesus? Preach the gospel to someone. Tell them why you have hope in this world. This world has coronavirus and generals with guns and assassins and sickness and relational conflict. You want to take a stand for Jesus? Tell people how you have hope in the midst of all of that. That's a defense of Jesus. Tell them why he's your savior. Tell them what he's done for you, how he's saved your life, how he's rescued you, how he's changed your heart, how he's made you more peaceful. Tell, tell them that that is taking a stand for Jesus. So stop trying to cut people's heads off and preach the message of hope. We're different, friends. Our weapons are not weapons of warfare. Our weapons are the Word of God that we speak from hearts that have been changed. That's, by the way, a much stronger weapon that changes people. So, in politics, you attack. In the military, you attack. In the kingdom, you preach, you love, you serve, and you suffer. That's how you stand for Jesus. You preach, you love, you serve, and you suffer. Our, our, our way of war is different. We seek to rescue our enemies because our Lord came to rescue His enemies, and we were among them. So, grandfathers in the room, stop attacking the rest of the world. Stop calling the rest of the world names. Seek to bring the rest of the world a message of hope. Stop complaining about how the rest of the world is broken and seek to bring the world a message of hope. Get on your knees for your grandchildren. When your grandchildren come, don't just tell them all about why the world is going just bonkers and in chaos. They don't need to hear that. They know that. They're living in this world. Get on your knees and pray. Tell them about the hope that they can have in Christ. Students, don't grow up complaining about how bad everything is. Ask someone in your class if they'd like to read the Bible with you. College students, a discussion on morality and Jesus will come up in a class at some point. Ask the Lord, 
to give you eyes to see the needs out there. You see someone intrigued and asking questions, hey, friend, would you like to read the Bible with me? Have you ever studied who Jesus is? We fight differently. We fight with hearts that have been changed and loved, and we want to bring the message of reconciliation to the world. So, bring your hope to other people. Peter tried to defend Jesus the wrong way, and we see in the rest of the Scriptures, the epistles, the right way to do it. So, we've seen the betrayal, we've seen the wrong defense, and now let's look at the misunderstanding, verses 48 to 49, the misunderstanding. Now, this is similar with my second point, the wrong defense. You see, Peter thinking this is going to be an armed conflict now, okay? Jesus corrects him. But you also here see Jesus rebuke the people coming to arrest him because this shouldn't be an armed conflict. So, so both Peter and this crowd of people arresting Jesus are mistaken that this is an armed sort of conflict. Look what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, you almost hear him saying, you, don't, you haven't been listening to what I've been teaching. You haven't been paying attention to me. My guys don't raise their swords and fight. We're not like Barabbas. We're not like the zealots. Have you come out against me as a robber? The NIV says it this way. I think it kind of gets at the heart a little better. Have you come up against me because I'm leading a rebellion? That's what Jesus is asking. Have you come out against me as a robber? And when you hear robber there, don't think, you know, guy in a striped shirt, skinny black pants with a little, like, black thing over his eyes, tiptoeing. That's not robber. The word's more of an insurrectionist, someone who would go and secretly hurt people, do things to try to get a political upper hand, trying to save, save Israel from those evil Romans. Have you come out against me as one of those guys with swords and clubs to capture me? He's criticizing their forceful approach. That's what he's criticizing. He, he's, it's as if they haven't been listening to him or watching him. And he also points to their cowardice, by the way, in verse 49. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. And you had your chance. I was literally in the temple teaching. You could have arrested me there. Now, we know why they didn't arrest him there, right? Because the people liked Jesus, and they were afraid of their approval numbers. They were afraid of displeasing the people, so they didn't do it there. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, and then this, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus isn't saying, why are you here with swords and clubs? I've been teaching all along. No, I'm not going with you. No, no, no. Why are you here with swords and clubs? I've been teaching in the temple. You could have gotten me there. I'm not a violent guy, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is not fighting the arrest. He's trusting in the plan of the Father, outlined in the Old Testament Scriptures. What Scriptures is He speaking of? Probably all the Scriptures that point to His suffering. Maybe it's the one that we studied earlier, Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay, time to strike me, time to arrest me, and now the sheep are going to be scattered because what do we see after these verses? The sheep are scattered. But I want you to see Jesus' commitment to Scripture, Jesus' commitment to the Father's way, the Father's will. Now, He's still rebuking those who arrest Him. They're not off the hook just because it was in the plan of the Father. Again, that's that sovereign, divine sovereignty and human responsibility thing. God's sovereign over this whole thing and even who He'll use for His purposes, but they're still responsible and they shouldn't be arresting Jesus in this manner, but they are, so let the Scriptures be fulfilled. They clearly misunderstand who Jesus is. Now, let me just say this to those of you who are here, and maybe you're not a Christian or you're looking into Christianity. Uh, you may have criticisms of Jesus. You, you, may, you may think that He teaches something that He doesn't. Let me just say it this way. Y you may not know who it is you're criticizing. So, so I would just invite you Give the Gospel of Mark an honest reading. We're studying it now in this church, so go to Mark 1, and I'd encourage you, know who it is you're criticizing. 
Well, Jesus just, you know, all, all Jesus' followers are self-righteous people. Look at the Christians today. Jesus just comes for those kind of uppity people. No, no, no. Actually, Jesus went after those people and said, I came for sinners, not the righteous. There may be things about Jesus and His teaching that you don't know. So don't make the mistake of these people here and misunderstand Jesus when He's actually revealed pretty clearly. I'd invite you to read about Jesus. Learn about Him. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read the Bible. Give it an honest reading. If you have questions, you can call our church office. You can come talk to me. Come talk to any Christian here. I mean, just just give it an honest reading. A lot of people today criticize a lot of things they don't understand. See Facebook. See Twitter. See everything, every form of media. So, I'm inviting you, understand who Jesus is. And Christians, I'll just remind you once more, the world misunderstands Jesus. We know that they wrongly arrested Him, but it was part of the Father's plan. We know this. So, just understand that there's a misunderstanding out there, and we're here to bring a message about who He is. Let's help people understand who Jesus is. Let's teach them what He said. So, there's the third action. We've seen the betrayal. We've seen the wrong defense. We've seen the misunderstanding. And now, fourth and finally, we see the abandonment. The abandonment. Verse 50, and they all left Him and fled. Now, usually in the Scriptures, when you're trying to figure out who the pronoun's talking about, they, who's they? Normally, you go to the people that were just spoken of, So maybe it says they left him. Maybe the people who came to arrest him all left him and fled. Well, we know that's not the case. We're now coming back. Mark's bringing us back to the disciples. They all left him and fled. And we see that by seeing verse 51 about a young man who had been following him, evidently one of his followers. We don't know who this young man is. But notice, they all left him and fled. So Judas has been highlighted by Mark. This temple guard and contingent of Roman soldiers has been highlighted for us. And now the disciples, the ones in the garden that would be the ones, if if you were betting, if you were a betting person, and we said, who would be the ones in the garden who won't leave Jesus? You'd bet on these guys. But here, verse 50, they all left him and fled. In the original language, verse 50, all is written for emphasis. What have we learned about this group of all of these people? Well, earlier, they all ate with him, and earlier, they all pledged to die with him. And now, in that moment, they all leave. They're all unfaithful to him. They abandon him. This, mark it down, is the last time we'll really get a window into the group of disciples. We'll see Peter and his denial coming up, but the disciples as a whole aren't talked about anymore. They've been so prominent in the Gospel of Mark. They've been so prominent. The next time they all are referred to is in Mark 16, 7, if I'm not mistaken. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. So the last time we see the disciples until the very end is their lowest moment. Andrew wasn't strong enough. Thaddeus, not strong enough. Peter, not strong enough. John, not strong enough. James, not strong enough. Philip, they all abandoned him. And then verse 51, verse 51 has troubled many a Bible teacher. Who is this young man? Don't know. We don't know. But notice what Mark puts in here. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Why in the world is verse 51 here, Mark? I believe this is here to show the chaos and the fear of the night. There's a young man, this could be Mark, who would have been young during this time, a young man who followed him. A lot of people think that the upper room house that they just came from was Mark's mother's house. We know that she was a woman of means, had wealth. Could be Mark inserting him into the, himself into the story here, but not naming himself. 
Could be. I think that it probably is, but I'm not going to die on that hill. What we do know is there's a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth. Now, why would he have a linen cloth? A couple of reasons. One, people who were wealthy had linen. So that's why some people think it also could be Mark. Not everyone had linen cloths. Um, also because people, followers of Jesus at this time, this night, were tired and might have been sleeping. Okay, so he's with his disciples. They go in the garden, and we know that as he advances further on with three of them, they fall asleep. Well, the others, the others who were following him after this meal, this Passover meal, could have been sleeping elsewhere in the garden. It would not have been odd, by the way, to see people sleeping outside in a garden setting in Jerusalem, especially during this weekend. It's not, it's not unfamiliar. I mean, they would have taken off their robes, and they would have some sort of covering, and they would have been sleeping outside. So that, that's not the odd part. The odd part is there's one of his followers there in that type of setting, and he's arrested by this group. As they're taking Jesus off, the, the soldiers evidently go after some of the disciples, and they all scatter, and they get one of them, and they grab his cloth that's covering him, and he still leaves, and he runs away naked. That, this is speaking to the, the leaving of the disciples. It's speaking to the terror of the night. It's speaking to the fear that they had. It's speaking to the chaos. That's what Mark's showing us. This was a chaotic scene, people fleeing all around, soldiers, clubs, Jesus bound, seized, going away, people going after followers, people hiding. This is what's happening here. People, whoa, a naked guy just ran away. Yeah, that's the night. That's what was happening here. And what I want you to see and what I believe Mark is trying to show you here is the abandonment. Jesus is now turned over into the hands of of sinners, just like he said would happen. He's alone. He's in custody, taken into custody by his enemies, and his followers are not around. Reminds me of Psalm 88, that famous psalm where there appears to be no hope. No hope. The psalmist says in Psalm 88, 18, you have caused my companions to shun me. Jesus knows what it's like to be shunned by companions, left by His friends. And isn't it interesting to see throughout the Scripture that the Scriptures, all the people of God who are left alone, that's why we started with Psalm 55 earlier in our service. Did David ever feel alone? Yes. Did Joseph ever feel alone? Yes. Did the prophets ever feel alone? Yes. Did Paul ever feel alone? Yes, end of his life. All have forsaken me. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the godly. Jesus is abandoned and alone. If you're a Christian who's ever felt abandoned and alone, you're not alone. Jesus is familiar. We are familiar with that to some degree, right? We've all felt that. You're meant to see the depths, the lengths at which Jesus went through for you, and you're also meant to see that you can identify with Him. I, I, read, about, I read one commentator this week say how encouraging this would have been to Mark's original audience who probably felt so alone under Roman control and so persecuted, but they knew Jesus was persecuted by a strong band, a strong military force. He knows what I'm going through. Jesus was abandoned. Th that word, that's not, a, that's not a fun term, abandon. It, it's a sad word. We read in the news of four-year-old babies being abandoned in dumpsters, and that word's used. We read of spouses being abandoned by other spouses. Here we read of the eternal Son of God, the Creator, the one who loves His creation, loves His people, being abandoned. And it's not just that they're abandoned by Judas. No, the leaders of Israel abandoned Him. His own friends abandoned Him. Again, Mark is showing you Jesus is alone. Mark 15, he hangs on the cross. And in verse 34, 
says, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we could just feel for half a second the abandonment that Jesus went through. But here's the good news, we never will. Because that abandonment is a sign of God's wrath on sinners and we'll never experience that. But He did. And He stepped into the abandonment. Stepped into the betrayal. Jesus, your Lord, was utterly abandoned. Loneliness isn't a fun feeling, is it? Remember back to your high school days if you're an older kid, an older adult. Remember back to those days and Maybe you go to a party or you're new at some church gathering or you're in new school. It is not fun to be alone. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. This is the man who came and healed people, who would die for sinners, who would comfort widows, who would give special attention to children, who would call His disciples who would rescue people from sin. This is that man, and this is the one that Romans 3 says all of us have abandoned. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone astray. Who do we go astray from? God. Jesus. We've all gone astray. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve to be alone but He willingly takes that for sinners. And don't miss this, friends. What does Jesus do when He's being abandoned, being betrayed, being given over? What does He do? What does He hang on to? The Scriptures. He hangs on to the Scriptures. So I want you to see Jesus hanging on to the Scriptures. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is hanging on to the Scriptures. Henry Blackaby says this to the Christian who is in a time of abandonment or lonely or suffering. He says this, there are times when in the darkest moments of your life the only comfort left for you is a word from God. The only comfort, the only comfort left for you is a word from God. Jesus faced the cruel injustice of a hostile world, but perhaps his deepest pain came when his closest friends deserted and betrayed him. What could possibly sustain him at such a dark moment? Jesus found his comfort in the Scriptures. The Scriptures kept everything in perspective for the Savior holding him steadfast in the knowledge that everything he was experiencing was according to his Father's plan. Jesus could proceed with confidence because the Scriptures assured him that the Father was in control. Blackaby continues, the Word of God will guide you in the same way. There will be times when events around you will confuse you. Those in whom you've placed your trust will fail you. Others will abandon you. You will be misunderstood and criticized in these times of distress when your devotion and obedience are put to the greatest test, you must let the Scriptures guide and comfort you. Never let the faithlessness of others determine what you do. Turn to the Scriptures and allow them to reorient you to God and His activity. Last thing I'll say is this. Notice that the abandoned one is also the committed one. When he was abandoned, he willingly went to trial. He was willingly mocked. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly went to the grave. And in so doing, he was raised again by the Father. And he demonstrated not that he was just the abandoned one, but he was also the committed one. Committed to the Father's will. And I don't know how to say it any clearer. Jesus Christ was committed to your eternal life. He stood there and he took it. 
Jesus is our picture of God. How do we know what God is like? Well, we can see the creation and know certain things. We can read about what He's done and how He's spoken from clouds. But the greatest way we know about what God is like is by seeing Him in human flesh. That's Jesus. And the Old Testament speaks of God as one who did not forsake His own. Yes, His own forsook Him, but He did not forsake His own. Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not, here's our word, abandon His heritage. God does not leave His people. And what did Jesus say at the end of the Great Commission? He's died He's risen again. He's reconciled himself to the disciples who all left him. And he tells the disciple, and he he tells you and I as well, he says this, I will never leave you or forsake you. The abandoned one is the committed one. Let's pray. Lord, all that you went through, and you stayed committed to the Father, and you stayed committed to us. We would have no hope if you would have ran away that night. We would still be in our sins. We'd still be waiting for a Savior. But you went through this because of your love for the Father and because of your love for us. And so I'm asking on behalf of this church that we would see you as more precious than we did an hour and a half ago, that we would see the abandoned one and that we would give him, Father, all praise and glory and give him our lives. Father, I'm also asking for those who feel abandoned and betrayed and sinned against, pray that they would find comfort by being in Christ, by knowing that they will never be abandoned like he was. They'll never go through the suffering that He went through. And also that You would comfort them by knowing that He understands what they're going through. Give them a comfort this morning. Father, there are so many things going on in hearts in this room, and I don't know all the things to pray for, so I leave this in Your hands, and I trust You, Holy Spirit, to bring this to the Father. Father, hear our prayers, meet our needs. We pray this in Your Son's name. Amen.